Well, if you would, please join me in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Our text today consists of just two verses. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that the book of Romans is filled with what we call jugular texts, texts that are vital to life, to eternity. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 is one of those texts. And here the Apostle Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And Father, we ask this morning that as we come to this precious text, that you will open our hearts, that you will give us understanding. Amen. In verses 1 through 15, Paul has introduced himself and he has greeted the church in Rome. And he has taken pains to explain that he longs to come to Rome and meet them in person. And woven into these pleasantries is a focus on the gospel of God. Paul's mission to preach the gospel and God's will to set him apart for that purpose. It is Paul's obligation, he says. It is his debt, a debt that he owes to his calling. It is Paul's obligation, his debt to preach that gospel to the Gentile world, and it makes him eager to visit Rome and to preach to them, which is why he writes this letter, which is really a revelation of the majestic riches of the gospel. Now, verses 16 and 17 form a bridge from this introduction and greeting to the main body of his letter. But they set forth the theme or the central thought of the whole thing. In fact, these two verses contain the primary ideas and teachings that will dominate the rest of the letter. And so Paul declares in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. He says at the end of verse 15, I am eager to preach the gospel to you, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now we have, uh, shame is a loaded word for us. Shame is something that's negative in our world, in our culture. Shame is something we, we don't want to feel, and in fact, we try to make sure that nobody feels shame. In Paul's culture, though, shame was not just a personal feeling. Oh, I'm just, I'm, I feel ashamed or I'm embarrassed. It was a public discrediting of a person that brought disgrace. 
That was shame. In fact, shame in the New Testament is probably closer to what Eastern cultures today consider shame. Shame versus honor. So being ashamed was a a response then to that disgrace in which a person who had been shamed, disgraced, discredited, would withdraw his views or his convictions from any public arena. To be ashamed was to be discredited and therefore silenced. So when Paul says, I am not ashamed... He isn't saying, I'm proud, I'm not ashamed, I'm proud of the gospel. He's saying something like, I will not cower. I will not be silenced. I will not retire from the field and hide in the shadows, even if my proclamation brings ridicule. I will not cower on account of the gospel. That's what Paul's saying. It is really a declaration of confidence in the gospel despite any kind of response to it. It is a declaration of confidence that the gospel will do what he preaches that it will do. Because Paul knows that it rests on the promises of God and the faithfulness of God. This is why in the opening verses, in introducing himself and and making clear that he's an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, Paul makes it clear that the gospel has been promised and God has been faithful in fulfilling his promises in bringing the gospel about. And the fact that Paul says this tells us something about what he assumes and what he sees. And that is that the the reality that the gospel is not square with the world. That according to the world's evaluation, the gospel is going to be treated as something shameful. That it will be a stumbling block. That it will be foolishness as... Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Greeks, the Gentiles. And starting in verse 18 here in Romans chapter 1, he will explain why it is a stumbling block, why it is foolishness to the world, to the human race. But Paul says, nevertheless, I will not cower I will not shrink back from preaching it. Now, what follows in verse 16, then, are two reasons we are never ashamed of the gospel. We're going to focus on verse 16 this morning, and next time we will look at verse 17. Two reasons we are never ashamed of the gospel. Number one, we are never ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God. It is the power of God. Despite any ridicule, despite any rejection, any efforts to bring shame upon the gospel, the gospel is the power of God. In other words, God exerts 
his power through the gospel when it is proclaimed. It is by his word that God accomplishes his will. And when we talk about, by the way, when we talk about preaching the gospel or proclaiming it, the, the most obvious example of that would be some sort of public preaching or proclamation. But it includes any, what we might, share, what might call sharing the gospel, explaining the gospel. When you point to Jesus, when you talk about the gospel, you are proclaiming it. You are preaching it. You are making it known. But Paul says, when this gospel is preached, when it is brought to bear, when it is explained, it is being proclaimed and it is God exerting his power. Now, what kind of power are we talking about? Well, first of all, we're talking about infinite power. Infinite power. In theological terms, we say that God is omnipotent. That means he is all-powerful. All-powerful. All power is his. Now, Moses recognizes this in Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 24. I want to direct you just to some scriptures here that talk about God's power. Deuteronomy 3.24, Moses says, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? In other words, there is no other. There is no other. About Job chapter 9 Verses four and following. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? He who removes mountains and they know it not when he overturns them in his anger. Who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. Who commands the sun and it does not rise who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the chambers of the south, these constellations who ordered the universe, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. That's the infinite power of our God about Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 10. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? And the picture here is that God has measured out out of his out of his uh, reservoirs of water and creation and measured out in the hollow of his hand all of the seas and oceans of the earth and apportioned them. Marking out the span of the heavens means taking his hand and going, the universe will be this big. That's what Isaiah's picturing. Who has done this? There is only one. 
who has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why does he cast his eyes to the stars and name those? I believe it's for this reason. I believe it's because on earth, we have dominion that has been given to us by God. Now, we are not all powerful. We cannot cannot still the sea, but we can harness its energy. We cannot rebuke the wind and keep it from blowing, but again, we can harness the wind and use it to sail across the oceans, to power, uh, to power energy. We can climb mountains. We can cut down forests and regrow them. But what about the stars? We have absolutely no power and no authority, no dominion over the heavens. We have been to the moon, which is a huge accomplishment for the race of humanity. But think about the vastness of the universe. And I believe that's why the Lord, through Isaiah, points us to look to the stars and says, not one of them is missing, and it has nothing to do with you. You can't touch them. You can't harness them. You can observe them. But you have no might, no power, no dominion. But God does. Because of the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. One of the great events of power, examples of God's power, was one that the nation of Israel clung to over and over and over again. And that was God's powerful deliverance of them out of Egypt, Exodus chapter 9. Beginning in verse 13, the Lord is speaking to Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time, I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. This is God warning Pharaoh again to let his people go. And the warning of judgment that I am sending this. And what he means by verse Uh, by verse 15, is I could have already completely wiped you off the face of the earth. I could have already completely destroyed you. 
verse 16, but for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my what? My power. My power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. That's why God redeemed his people out of Egypt. That's why he sent them down there for 400 years and allowed them to be enslaved so that he might deliver them. Why does the Lord allow his people to languish between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension and until the time that he comes again, he will repeat the exodus. And while we fill this time, we are like the people of Israel enslaved in Egypt. And God will come with power and he will deliver us as he delivered them. The Exodus is what we call a type, a picture of what God would do in a fuller and greater sense in the future. The people of Israel, as I said, would always point to this event as proof that God had called them out, that they were his people and they would rejoice before him, that they would be a light among the nations. Psalm 77, verses 14 and 15, is an example of this this rejoicing and exultation. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. So God's power, his authority, and his sovereignty, they are all linked together It is by his infinite power that he maintains his sovereign rule, and there is no rival. By his power, he secures his glory. By his power, he redeems his people. We often think of the spiritual warfare in the heavens between God and Satan like we watch a movie in which the fate of the world hinges on these two uh, combatants. There is no comparison. God is not somehow on the edge of losing. And when God wins, it will be complete and final. And it will be effortless. That is infinite power. And how then does God exert his power? How has God accomplished these things? God exerts his power through his word. God exerts his power through his word. So for God to speak, it is the same for him to use his arm to deliver. That is the exercise of his power, his might, his strength. Isaiah chapter 55, beginning in verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word is powerful, works as he intends it to work. Psalm 147, verse 15, 
draws on this same truth. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. Nothing hinders it. In Jeremiah 23, verse 29, the Lord asks this question. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rocks in pieces? Psalm 33, verses 8 and 9. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. Here he's talking about the creation of the world and all of its inhabitants. Jeremiah 27, verse 5. It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth, and I give it to whomever it seems right to me. Now think about what God says here. By my great power, my outstretched arms, I have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth. Now listen to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by what? The word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So you see what the Lord calls in Jeremiah chapter 27 through the prophet, my great power and my outstretched arm, the writer of Hebrews calls the word of God. It's created all the universe so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. He created everything that is out of nothing. Nothing existed. Non-existence. And in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, he says this about Jesus Christ. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by what? Again, the word of his power. The word of his power. Now watch. The gospel of God is God's word through which he exerts this same infinite power. And when Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God, Paul is talking about all of these verses and all of the other verses that I didn't read this morning that reveal the power of God. And he's saying all of that power is impacted into the gospel. It is the power of God. And so it must be preached. It must be proclaimed. And it will never disgrace those who preach it because it never fails in its mission. It never fails in its mission, no matter how inadequate or frail the speaker may be. Now, it doesn't feel that way very often, does it? 
And I think that all of us would say, I feel totally inadequate. I don't have all the answers to the challenges, to the questions. But it is the gospel that is the power, not your ingenuity, not my cleverness, not how well we articulate everything. No, the gospel is the power of God. Now, what is God's mission then? If the gospel is his power that is at work, that that exerts his authority and his sovereignty in the world, what is his mission? What is God's goal? What does God's power accomplish through the gospel? Salvation. Salvation. And so... We are never ashamed of the gospel because the gospel saves everyone who believes. The gospel saves everyone who believes. By the power of his word, God creates the universe. By the power of his word, he sustains the universe. He upholds it. By the power of his word, God rules the universe By the power of his word, he secures his glory. By the power of his word, he redeems his people. And the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Salvation. To be saved is to be delivered. It is to be rescued. Now, sometimes the word salvation in the Bible can refer to what we experience when we first come to Christ, when we are converted, when we are born again. And so in this sense, it's right for us to say that we have been saved, that is, we are already saved. The Bible, uh, the New Testament speaks of our faith and our lives as Christians in that sense sometimes. Just for an example, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 Paul writes, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Do you see how what he's saying there? To be saved is to come to a knowledge of the truth. So at the point that a person comes to a knowledge of the truth and understands who Jesus is, why the cross All of these things that are the gospel, when they come to a knowledge of the truth, they are saved. There are many aspects of our salvation that are already accomplished. Salvation also describes a process we are currently in. If you are a Christian, you are in the process of being saved. You are being saved. Let me give you an example from another text for this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Again, the Apostle Paul. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. Let's pause right there. The gospel I preached, which you have already received, and in which you stand. There you are. That is accomplished. You are standing in the gospel, verse 2, 
and by which you are being saved. There is a process in which God is saving. It is a process that has already begun when we have come to a knowledge of the truth and now we are in a process of being delivered. We are in a process of being rescued. And sometimes that's talked about in the language of sanctification, being made holy, transformation. But in a, in a, in a context like this, it's not even talking about transformation. It's just saying that there is a work of salvation, of deliverance that is going on in our lives that has already begun. It has a starting point, and some of it has already been accomplished. That has been established. And now we are in the process of being delivered, being saved and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. So this being saved is partly, uh, we participate in it by persevering, by holding on to the word I preached to you. That's the gospel. So salvation is in one sense accomplished and we can, we can say we are saved I am saved. In another sense, then, it is a process. We are being saved. But there is also a future aspect to our salvation. That is when salvation will be fully accomplished. We will be saved when we are delivered from final judgment. Now, when uh, and just as an example for that, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. Peter says, We are those who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So there, Peter is talking about salvation in this end, at the end, in the culmination. So this, this process of being saved has an ending point in which being saved is all done completed. And when Paul says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, he means the gospel accomplishes the whole thing. Paul is talking about the whole package here. The power of the gospel is sufficient to deliver us even unto the end, to complete the whole thing, accomplish at the beginning and save us throughout and then save us in the end. This salvation becomes then one of the main concerns of the letter. Paul will talk about all of these aspects in depth. At times, Paul will talk about what has already been accomplished in our salvation. At other times, Paul will talk about this process. We are, we are standing in the gospel and, and we, what this new life means. And at other times, Paul will talk about being saved from the perspective of the final salvation, completed salvation. But his emphasis really is the end, that it's complete, this future and final salvation but now this should cause us to ask a few questions. Like, save us from what? Why is salvation so important? 
when we talk about being saved, what are we being saved from? Reminds me of a conversation I had with a, um, a gal when I was in college, in summer between college. I was working at Six Flags Magic Mountain, and uh, I, was, I was one of those photographers at the front gate. Some of you heard me tell this story probably. You come in, we take, they don't do this anymore as far as I know, but, uh, because everyone's got digital cameras on their phones, but back then, you'd take the pictures and then take them back, develop them, and turn them into all these little trinkets. Souvenirs you could buy, okay, memories. And so we're on duty, we're out front, and she starts talking to me about her family life, and it's pretty broken, and, and she goes, I, I need therapy, I need therapy. And I said, no, Amy, that was her name, Amy. I said, Amy, you don't need therapy, you need to be saved. And she said, saved from what? Oh, we like it when someone asks that, don't we? I said, you need to be saved from sin. You need to be saved from yourself. You need to be saved from judgment in the end. And that's what Paul is really talking about here. Saved us from what? From the wrath of God. From God's wrath, his angry judgment that awaits every person and the whole human race. In Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, a few chapters away, Paul will say that Christ died for us, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Wrath is not a popular subject. We do not want to speak of God's wrath in our day, but Paul is going to be very blunt not only blunt, but desperately blunt about God's wrath, the wrath that awaits every person and the human race. So ultimately, when we ask the question, saved from what? We are talking about being saved from eternal wrath. But that leads us to another question, should. Why would God be angry with us? Isn't God love? Why would God be angry with me? Why would God be angry with us? Because the entire human race and every individual member of it has rebelled against God and rejected him. You are born that way. Every one of us is born that way. And this is exactly the desperate reality that Paul will make clear in chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks. That we are all in rebellion against God. Why would God be angry with us? Because the entire human race and every one of you, including me, has rebelled against him. We're born rebels. That's our starting place. So we need to be saved from the wrath of God, wrath that we have deserved because of our rebellion. And that ought to lead us to another question then. How can I have the salvation? How can I be saved? 
That answer is found right here in verse 16. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Who believes? Faith. Faith. And this word believes in verse 16 is the same word that we see in verse 17 from faith, for faith. This is just the English verb. We don't use faith as a verb. We don't faith something. We believe it. It's the same word. Salvation is secured by believing this gospel. And according to Romans chapter 10, verse 9, confessing Jesus is Lord. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The necessity of faith also becomes one of the major points of the book of Romans because it is by faith and faith alone that anyone destined for God's wrath can be rescued from that wrath. It is the only way. And Paul will go on to show here in Romans that it's always been the only way is to take God at his word, to rest in the salvation that he has provided. The gospel then is salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, Paul is not speaking chronologically here. His, the idea here is not that it came, you know, the Jew first, even if that is true, came to the Jew first, then to the rest of the world. Paul here is making a point of priority. Primacy. And what he means is that the gospel came to the Jew first as a matter of promise and fulfillment. We've already seen this back up in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. The gospel of God he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. That was part of the plan, part of the purpose, part of the design of God's redemption, of salvation, is that his son, his appointed one in power, would come through David. So salvation was promised first to the Jewish people, then through the Jewish people to everyone else. That's what, what he means by the Greek here. He means the rest of the world, everyone who's not part of Israel. And again, I will say it, this tension becomes one of the major thoughts throughout the rest of the letter that Paul will unpack. Because there was the temptation then in the church for those who were Jewish to, to claim a place of primacy and there was a temptation for the Gentiles to say, God's done, you, that your time is over, our time is now, and we don't have to come under the law, and that caused tension. But this is necessary according to the plans and the purposes of God. And Paul is making sure right from the start when he says that the gospel 
is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, both Jew and Gentile, those who are part of Israel and all the promises and receiving the law, and those who are not, those who are outside of it. Both are saved in the same way by believing. But there is a plan, a purpose in God's design that puts the Jews first. And it has to be that way because of Genesis chapter 12, all the way back to the beginning. Remember, the book of Romans is explaining God's plans and purposes from behind the curtain. From a sovereign perspective, Paul is peeling back the curtain and showing us God's sovereign working and how he has ordered all these things. And so standing behind this to the Jew first and also to the Greek is God's first promise to Abram back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And we're going to look at verses 2 and 3 where he said to Abraham, I will bless you and make your name great. Why? So that you will be a blessing. The one has to happen before the other. That's part of the purpose. That's part of the plan. And then he explains, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That can't happen unless the, and the gospel is the fulfillment of that. That's what Paul is getting at here. The gospel is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant and promise all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. It is the peak. When we come to the gospel, we are coming to the mountain peak of all of God's designs and purposes and history, and it is the highest peak, and when you stand at the top of the gospel, you can see all of history and the future, and they all make sense because of the vantage point that the gospel gives us. And it all started back here in Genesis chapter 12. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing in you. All the families, all the ethnicities, nations, people groups, languages, all of them will be blessed. How? Because Jesus came from Abraham. Jesus was the descendant that came from the people who would be like the the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea. All of these, the great nation that God says he will make Abraham, Jesus was that one. And it is through him, Jesus represents all of that promise, and through him come the blessings to all of the families of the earth. For that reason, salvation comes through the gospel first to the Jew and also to the Greek. This is part of the plan. The Apostle Paul here is writing to the Romans and saying, you'll remember in the verses preceding, I want to come to Rome. We know that Paul eventually got to Rome. Paul didn't get to Rome probably in the way that he expected though. Because even at the end of the letter of Romans here, he talks about going to Judea 
and delivering, what he's talking about is actually delivering a financial gift to the believers there who are under duress. And it's when he goes to Judea, back to Jerusalem, that Paul will actually be arrested. And he will be imprisoned. And then he will eventually be sent to Rome. You may remember in the book of Acts, where Paul appeals to Caesar. And as a Roman citizen, he has a right to make that appeal and to appear before Caesar and present his case. And so he is sent to Rome, not there mainly to come and visit the church, but as a prisoner preaching the gospel. And so when he gets to Rome, we find him in Acts chapter 28, the very end of the book of Acts, speaking first to the Jews. When Paul comes to Rome, he's under guard, but he sends word to the Jews in the city. His first audience is the Jews. And we see played out in the last chapter of Acts in the city of Rome a fulfillment in Paul's ministry that he gives us a preview to right here. Acts 28, beginning in verse 23. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. He had already had some interaction with the Jewish leadership, and he said, I, I, they said, we've heard about you, and the things we've heard are not good. Paul says, that's part of the reason I'm glad to be here. I want to share with you. I want to talk to you about what happened and why I'm in prison, how I was framed by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. And so he, he, he makes this appeal, and they say, okay, let's set a date. So they come back, and that's what's happening here. They come back to his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets, the scriptures. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, this started an argument among them as to the truthfulness and accuracy of what Paul is preaching, Disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them to the Jew first. But there's rejection as a whole. Even if some will believe, as a whole, there is rejection. Verse 28, therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. You see, so everything Paul is saying here is exactly then what he does when he gets to Rome. And we find Paul at the end of this chapter here preaching the, the kingdom of God and the gospel without hindrance. So everything that Paul has been saying here that he wants to do, he ends up doing. But these verses, 
verses 16 and 17, are verses that ought to be emblazoned across the minds and hearts of God's people. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And verse 17 we'll get to next time. Let's pray.